Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. We would like to acknowledge the Turrbal and Yagara peoples as the traditional owners of these lands where we stand, recognizing that these have always been places of meeting and sharing. I'd also like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi everyone, welcome to General Queries, a podcast about the Brisbane queer scene. I'm your host Talia. Unfortunately, Megan can't join us uh, today, but I have joined with me in the studio uh, two wonderful, wonderful people who will be talking to me about a theatre show that I'm quite excited for. I've already booked my tickets, I'm not going to lie. So, I'm joined in the studio with... Hi, uh, I, I'm uh, Bradley. I am one of the directors of Holding the Man uh, and I'm a homosexual male. I'm a thick fuel. <laughs> <laughs> um, hi, I'm Lachlan. I'm the other director of Holding the Man, and I'm a bi male. Stunning. I love both of you. Um, so, Holding the Man, uh, would you like to give me a little bit of background about um, the show, uh, who's doing it, where it's being held, when it's being held? All, yeah, that, sure. all that basic stuff. Um, so this is being produced at the uh, Chanel Theatre in St. Lucia um, by Underground Productions. Uh, so we open on the 27th of February um, and we run through to the 2nd of March. Uh, so tickets are, I think, $20 for adults. And then there's like those, you know, tickets have those random different prices for different people. For concessions. But the basic and, middle, yeah. middle of the road one, I think, is $20. Yeah. Um, so the play, it kind of follows um, the memoirs of Tim Conagrave, mm -hmm. who was a, um, a gay man who lived in uh, Melbourne and Sydney um, during the AIDS crisis in Australia. And it sort of gives this um, really touching insight into his life, his life and like the life of his partner um, and like an Australian perspective on the AIDS crisis. The AIDS crisis of the 80s, 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 80s? Late, yeah, 80s? 70s, yeah, uh, yeah, okay, cool, early 90s, yeah, because um, it, it, I think the AIDS crisis hit Australia a little bit after it hit America, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was um, sort of, I guess, uh, known by rumor before it was known by yeah. Yeah. Uh, event yeah. in Australia. Um, so what was the what's the process of the the media here? Because first it was the life story, and then it was a book. Yeah, so. Uh, Conagrave wrote the the memoir, mm -hmm. um, which was published in 1995, um, shortly after he passed away. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was adapted um, a su surprisingly a long time afterwards. I mean, it was uh, in, in 1995 when it came out, it won the United Nations um, Human Rights Award for nonfiction. Um, and then it was a, a massive book, and I remember reading it when I was – uh, in, in the early 2000s when I was in high school. Um, and it was sort of a famous book for sort of what it was doing, but it didn't branch into any other media until 
quite recently, mm. like I think the last five years. Something like that. Um, yeah. So the play was uh, written and uh, produced in Sydney and then the film came shortly after, I think those are, that's the right I believe the film came <laughs> yeah. after the play. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then I think since the film, then the play went international. Mm. Okay. Um, where it's still being produced sort of professionally. The most recent one was last year in Chicago, the Chicago tour. And okay. Yeah, so it's uh, it's taken, you know, 30-odd years, but it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, gotten it's out that. there now. Yeah, <laughs> cool. So what's it been like? Um, well, first of all, why don't we talk about um, the difference between – have you read the book and um, what's the difference between the book and the actual script? Because I know the script was um, written by someone – like it was commissioned by someone in the STC – um, yep. And it's from what I've read of it, it, it's quite a reflective kind of style. Yeah. So, um, so I read the book when I was in high school um, in two thousand and three, um, and and it's sort of there, there are passages or sections of the book that I think it's one of those books or any like any really heavily emotional moment where you sort of remember you have like those vivid memories amongst the lucid ones even if it was a while ago Mm -hmm. so there are sort of just passages from the book that I really distinctly remember um and and images that you sort of get when you read the book that I distinctly remember and those passages and images translate quite well into the play so even though Tommy Murphy wrote the play um and Tim Conagrave wrote the book a lot of the actual passages from the novel are written as dialogue mm-hmm. um including there's a uh the play ends with a, a letter that tim writes to john um his partner his partner yeah, yeah. and um and that is a mon- is written as a monologue mm-hmm. within the play um so yeah there's uh, although it's adapted they've really used like the words of mm-hmm. the person whose experience it was in order yeah. to sort of craft the play and fill in the blanks i guess where where they need to so what kind of style is it written in is it still because i know um the film is very like heavy realism Uh, like as film i guess is it's a very immediate uh medium therefore everything about it is very immediate but but what's the the play kind of written as well it's um it's kind of an eclectic style i guess yeah it's it sort of transitions um uh through like kind of flows through different periods in tim's life Mm -hmm. um there's not any sort of like naturalistic structure to the way the scenes are set out. It's just sort of like one moment of Tim's life bleeds into the next. Yeah, there's no... And it goes through like all the significant um, like emotional moments, like all the important like bits of development in his life and stuff. Yeah. There's no, um, there's no like scene one, scene two yeah. in the way that it's written. Um, and there's, so there's a, a cast of only six actors and there's about 50 characters too. So um, the actors who play Tim and John just consistently play Tim and John throughout the play and then everyone else sort of comes in as, as different roles. So I guess it's sort of a blend of like, it's a Brechtian verbatim. Uh, just cram all of them in there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but a bit of a few different styles sort of blended together. The acting is very naturalistic yeah. um, and because it is a true story yeah. um, and, you know, we need to do justice to a true story. Mm-hmm. It's written in such a way that the conversations are, um, emotional, impactful in the st- in that realism style, but nothing about the actual structure mm-hmm. is very realistic. So what's it been like um, for you guys adapting or, or molding this very naturalistic script, which sounds very much like it, it relies heavily on monologue with a little bit of dialogue. What's that been like trying to put that on stage? Um, it's, 
well, it's, it's tough because of how emotional it is. So we're like, yeah, we get a bit teary every rehearsal. Um, but it's the, well, what Lachlan and I talked about sort of from the start was that we like the idea of, because it is a true story. And when Tim Cograve wrote it, he was at the end of his life mm. and he was thinking back on, um, on the last 15 years with, mm. with this man who, um, who he like, you know, loved beyond, <laughs> beyond the capacity of life. Mm. He, um, and so when we read the script and the way that the script is vague and its transitions and, and time passes without that being necessarily clearly identified, yeah. we sort of thought about it in the terms of like, you know, when you, if you're thinking back on something and you've got sort of memories become quite fragmented. Yeah. And so you, um, you might have sort of clear pictures of certain things and then they sort of this might be hazy in between events and you, you have very clear memories and then those memories that are sort of blended and maybe some things that you've remembered wrong and they're blended in together. So we're trying to stage it um, in a way that is reflective of that kind of, uh, that kind of feeling of mm-hmm. some things are quite vivid and vivid and then some things are intentionally slowed or intentionally vague. So it feels to us that we are seeing an actual memory playing out okay. um, rather than, you know, a s- explicit narrative, I guess. Mm. Because um, the way Tim uh, wrote, the book and this has been carried over through the play is um um like all of the narration from the book is tr- is or a lot of it is asides that tim gives on stage to the audience so it is written in a way that is like trying to evoke the feeling of this man in his 30s reliving moment key moments throughout his life mm-hmm. um and like Barbara was saying like that kind of comes through with some of the haziness of some of the things and we've tried to Try to build that up with the with the staging and everything. So the movie is uh, like I've only seen the movie and I've read excerpts of the play, so that's kind of the perspective that I'm coming from. So I, I feel like the film is very um, intense in all of its detail, whereas like what you're talking about is is a very kind of soft way of going about all of these memories. Um, what was your process in? developing this vision like did you like go back and reread the book did you go and watch the movie what have you done to put together your vision and how has that worked collaboratively um so i i so i've read the book as i said before many years ago um so i reread it um because that's i guess that's sort of the the point where um you know because it is a true story and i would sort of maybe approach this differently if it wasn't because a true story, I thought that the words of the person whose story it is had to inform what we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we were disrespectful to that, um, that it would, um, you know, we're disrespectful to the, the, the core text itself or the original text itself, then we were doing it maybe for the wrong reasons. Um, so I went back and I reread that. I've never actually watched the movie from the start to the finish. I've seen, I think I've seen all of it, but in different in sort of fragments, but, um, but I haven't sort of sat down and watched it. And Lachlan, I know you. Oh yeah. I've completely avoided the movie. Oh, entirely intentionally. Um, most of, um, the stuff that I've been doing and like my vision for the play comes from, um, just like reading and rereading and rereading the script itself. And I do, um, I've been doing a lot of like research about the era and stuff, mm-hmm. um, and about, the characters and like who they were as people mm. but i've been trying to avoid like other versions of holding the man because i know myself and i know how susceptible i am to being like influenced by stuff like that yeah um and i feel like like i signed on to do this play because i thought i had a good vision for it and mm. i didn't want to then like kind of 
spoil that? that kind yeah. of yeah, kind of pollute that by um by being like, oh, I saw this cool thing in the movie, so we should do this in the play. And I just know that I would. So yeah. and I guess I haven't touched it. The only um the only influence I've drawn from the movie is actually I when I when I watch the movie, I don't really I don't really feel much empathy for Tim. Um, yeah, the way he's portrayed. I, I, yeah. I, I sort of watch him and I'm just like, well, you do. He does some pretty horrible things. Mm. And the way the way the book is written, you know, because um, Tim Conagrave wrote it after his partner had died. Yeah. And the book ha- has this sort of profound undercurrent of guilt where he talks John up so much and, mm. and puts him on this pedestal, this like absolute perfection that he, he mm. thinks John is. And he's quite cruel to himself mm. um and it's not it's not deliberate i don't think or obvious but when you read it you can feel that he's so he feels so guilty for not mm. giving john the absolute best he could give him yeah. um and and the result of that is that we see john is quite you know um he's, he's displayed pretty perfectly throughout the text and tim does some awful things mm. um and in in that because Tim is the protagonist and he is the person who talks to us as as the mm. audience um you have to really like him in order to forgive the things that he does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in the movie, I don't feel like I do forgive him. I thought I'd be like, mm, <laughs> yeah. you're just, just a bit of a, mm. bit of a wanker. So um, uh, that was another discussion that we had was one of the things that was so important to us was to cast someone who could do the bad things that Tim does, but mm. still make us feel for him. Yeah. Because if we don't like him, then that's my problem with the movies. I don't like Tim. So I, I don't, you know, like yeah. gel with the yeah. movie like I feel like I could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we needed someone that the audience could look at and identify with and find like and still root for mm-hmm. throughout the play despite um despite the stuff that he had been doing wrong. Yeah. And sort of like we wanted him to come across quite clearly as more than that. Mm-hmm. Um which I think was an important, it was a really important part of the casting process was ensuring that we had someone that could capture that because it is, it is a difficult role to bring that through with. And with the wrong interpretation, you could have someone that yeah. the audience didn't like at all and the whole play kind of. Can we talk a little, are you okay to talk a little bit about like casting and yeah. Yeah. like what, what it was like actually having all these people like come and audition for you <laughs> and also then like how important it was for identity to sort of, sit over the top of that like how did you go about casting in reference to making sure that x people represented this story um so the most important thing that Lachlan and I said I think the first thing we said to each other when we sat down at our first meeting was that the we have to feel like the actor who actors who play Tim and John have to be able to sell that relationship and that you know because we see they meet in the play when they're 15 and then um, John dies when he's 30 and we have to believe that there's this 15 year love story, you know, with, with whoever we cast. So that was sort of the main thing that we were looking for, um, when, when we sat down. And so, uh, we were pretty blessed with the amount of people that we had. Oh, absolutely. Um, and as I said before, there's six characters in the play and it meant we had to, you know, only pick six from a pool of like 50 incredible mm-hmm. people and um and you know we called them all well we called a lot of them back and sort of paired them up and it was a long process we were there well into the night and it was oh, yeah. really it was one of the hardest um you know i've uh, cast a lot of shows before it was one of the hardest casting decisions i've had to make because there were so many really 
mm. great people. And it was just a matter of we just have to narrow it down to who do we believe out of all of these people, who do we believe are the two that have had this so know, life story together. What did we what was the decision that we ended up with? So we ended up with um like who do we cast? Yeah, who do we yeah, cast? So we um, have, and what's that dynamic kind of like? Okay. We ended up picking Drew Buchanan and Zachary Chryson. Drew mm-hmm. is um Tim and Zach is John because um I think at the end of the day, when we were seeing all the pairings together, they were the two that every time we saw them talk to one another, we believed that there was something happening between them, like that they had a history, even just during like cold reads and stuff. It was kind of incredible to see like they had this natural chemistry almost immediately. Yeah, because um, they and they'd never met before walking in either, so it was. Oh yeah, they had no idea who it each really. Other were. It really like stood out to us when they mm-hmm. connected, um, because there was nothing prepared or planned about it. It was just a really natural mm. click. Um, and one of I think the strongest things in all of what we're doing in the show, one of the things that I am most uh, impressed by every rehearsal is the connection. And the story that these two tell, yeah. even just when they look at each other, yeah. it's really, um, it's really powerful, and they both do a really incredible job. Um, and I think since the show hinges on that, that's mm. something I'm just super happy with. Oh yeah, when mm. they're when they're together. Mm. Um, I really want to talk because we were talking about um, before we started recording that. Um, remind me again. Uh, Drew is gay. No, not Drew. Is, Zach is gay. Zach, Zach is, is gay. gay. Drew, Drew is straight. Drew is straight. How do you feel that works? Um, like what do you think that brings to the rehearsal room or especially to like this kind of story which is a gay love story mm. um, so um, yeah so Drew Drew is, is a heterosexual male playing Tim um, and that wasn't a decision that we made because I'd, I'd never met Drew mm. also when he walked in so we weren't asking people how they identified um, and it was until sort of into the rehearsal process they were sort of both explain where they'd come from. Um, so, um, for me though, I drew is, uh, 100%, um, unafraid to engage with that part of, you know, that part of the role and, Mm -hmm. and to, and to play that role in with absolute hundred percent commitment. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and there's nothing shy or reserved or, um, you know, he's just, he's just hundred percent there. And I, you hundred percent believe that he is, you know, he is that role when, when you watch him. Um, so what I really like about it though, and what I like about the fact that Drew is that, I think it, um, it, I do a lot of work. Um, I'm an educator Mm. outside of theater. Um, and I do a lot of work in gender and, um, theater and how, uh, how the arts sort of are reflective of traditional gender formations and then sort of divergent gender formations. Um, and what I really like about, about Drew in this role is that a heterosexual man playing this homosexual love story with such commitment um, and empathy, it really, to me, reinforces for maybe audiences and a lot of other people that actually this, you know, not, not being typical heterosexual, heteronormative behavior and that kind of thing um, is really empowering. So mm-hmm. I, I really am happy that we've ended up with someone who is so willing to challenge maybe what social preconceptions dictate that he mm-hmm. should be or that how he should behave or how he should engage with mm-hmm. other people, um, which I think is that's something that I'm really excited to see develop. I'm excited to see audiences see that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, has How has he 
taken to it? Like, I obviously like it was his decision to go and audition, but how has he taken to um, the, I guess the intimacy of the work? Oh, I mean, he was right on board, right from, right from the get go. Um, it was like first week of rehearsals. Um, and they just got like, were completely committed from day one. And I don't think there was a, a, like a moment where there was like hesitance or anything, which, um, which yeah, is we, really good. We said to them in auditions, sort of to everyone, mm-hmm. oh, by the way, this play has a lot of kissing scenes with, uh, with the actor who plays opposite you. Um, and there's a lot of sort of simulated sex scenes as well. Yeah. Um, and you know, you, you don't, don't go through with the audition if you're, <laughs> yeah, if you're, if you're, you're not comfortable. To do that. You had to be yeah. able to um, do it. Yeah. But I've, you know, I, I know that uh, a lot of, a lot of um, productions, a lot of actors sort of hold off on that sort of thing until a bit later in the production when they're comfortable with each other. Mm. Um, and given that uh, Drew was coming from a place of a lack of experience of kissing another man, yeah. <laughs> um, I did suggest to him and, and say, you know, if you might feel more comfortable in the long run if you, mm. if you um, look at, we look at that stuff earlier on. Um, and, and he was that sort of what he was thinking as well. So I think the very first rehearsal we had, we actually didn't have Zach who plays John present. So we sort of blocked a couple of scenes around where Zach would stand. Mm. Um, and then when Zach got there in the second rehearsal, um, we went through those and it was the case because Drew had, had blocked it and, and had prepared it. He was actually sort of more ready to yeah. <laughs> to go mouth to mouth than what Zach was. Yeah. You know, even though, <laughs> Obviously, uh, you know, Zach would naturally, I guess, be more comfortable in that situation. But. Yeah. The only real interaction that I've had with the work has been mainly through the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've read, uh, especially when the film came out, there were a lot of um, issues with, I forget who played Tim, but uh, he was also, he's quite a big name Australian actor. Um, Ryan Cole, is that the other one? One of them is Cora is John. Okay. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> much attention. <laughs> they were, uh, he's been on Pack to the Rafters, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. I can picture yeah. yeah you, that face. Um, but, you know, they were constantly asking him, like, you know, how do you go through the sex scenes? How do you do the love story? Like, you're a straight man. How do you do this? And a lot of what he was saying was just like, it's just a love story. Like, has, has stuff like that come up in the rehearsal room? Like, you've been like, oh, is there a difference here? Or is there it's just kind of like a love is love situation. What, what kind of vibe does that give when you get to those scenes? Yeah. Um, it's, it's really, really natural. Mm. Um, and I guess it's a credit to Drew. Um, I'm not sure exactly what his process is and if he's, um, you know, sort of treating it as a traditional actor and just imagining the person that he loves there and, Mm. and going in with it. Um, but there's, there's not been a moment, for me, and I, I sh- I'm sure Lachlan will agree, um, there hasn't been a moment where I felt any of the physical scenes, the physical intimacy scenes were felt um, uncomfortable or felt, oh, no. like, um, <laughs> felt like sort of Drew was holding something back or, um, or that there wasn't that sort of connection or engagement with them. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure what is going through Drew's mind as he does it, but to us watching it, it... You get the results. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean it, it's translated into us really not having to think about the fact, um, think about anyone's like identity or anything yeah. in the, like in terms of our actors specifically, mm-hmm. because they do these roles well. They do these roles well and they do what they, and they do they and they do it very naturally and very believably. Um, right. So it just, it really, because that, that was one of my biggest concerns coming into the play and it just hasn't been an issue. And, and the fact that, 
I, I hadn't actually thought of this until you just asked that question. And I think that yeah. shows like, oh, yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> like yeah, I mean, it's very fortunate. That actually that hasn't that's even come up on my had, radar. How, yeah. Because of how smoothly that's gone. It's it's so nice that we haven't had to worry about it. Because um, it could have been, it, with another actor, and I mean, obviously, um, it could have been a really a really difficult process mm. getting them comfortable with um with that sort of stuff but it just yeah i think i think we've got a really good cast um and everyone i mean everyone cuz um there's stuff with there's like physical stuff with every person in the play and everyone has been completely comfortable with it from the beginning okay. it's been really fortunate honestly really grateful for it <laughs> um so has that like um Non-clementure isn't the word, but that kind of um, non-relevance of identity, has that also been like something reflective of the production team and of you or have you felt like this is a story that you are entitled to tell because this is something that is close and personal to you? How do, how do you how do you and your relate, uh, identities relate to the work personally? Well, with, with – um this particular story, um, one of the important things for me in telling it is that I think a lot of people do assume, um, who, who haven't lived this experience, do assume that the gay experience is the same experience for a lot of people. Um, and I'm 30 and, you know, I was born in the 80s, in the late 80s, but the the age crisis is unknown to me in terms of my personal experience. Like, mm. I didn't live that. And... Mm. Um, and the people who, who did live that have, have lived a completely different gay experience to mm. what I have. Um, and, uh, and you know, that's the same for Zachary, who's, as we said, is, is, is a gay guy in our cast. Um, his lived experience is totally different to my lived experience. And so I don't think there's an entitlement that I think, well, because I'm gay, I get to tell holding the man as a story yeah. because my, like, apart from that, my story isn't anything like, Mm-hmm. Tim Connor Graves. Um, so, you know, it's, I think it's, it's just that, that part of it is important to me because I know that people do assume that this is a gay experience and everyone's got the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's important for me to tell in terms of my own story to tell the fact that this isn't my story. That makes sense. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's showing that everyone does have, you know, does have a different lived experience. And we do come at things from a totally different way, regardless of how we identify yeah. in a lot of cases. Did you want to jump in there? Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't really have anything to add. I like, I completely agree with Brad. It, it was just a matter of like, um, I think I wanted to make sure, cause at the time, obviously when I was applying, I didn't know who else was going to be applying and mm. stuff. And I felt that it was important for someone, um, just someone in the LGBT community, mm. um, uh, to be kind of helping organize this show, um, to make sure that like, little moments and stuff like the the smaller like emotional moments and stuff were presented um with as much honesty as possible but yeah like really at the end of the day none of us could understand the experiences that they go through and i think it's less a matter of like we should be able to tell this story as a the people that are a part of this story deserve this story to be told Mm -hmm. um and the members of the lgbtq plus community uh now um i think it's important for us to know the sorts of things that the people that came before us went through so Mm. i think it's important i think it's important to everyone that this story is told um but i don't think we get any specific claim to it just because it is so removed from our experiences 
Yeah. Um, I'm actually going to jump on that. You kind of a little bit answered it. But um, if we are so removed from the experience, what is the relevance of the story then in telling it? Because I know like uh, especially like theatre seems to force itself um, to justify its own relevance constantly. Mm. So why are we bringing back a story from the 80s? Like why do you feel it's relevant to today? Um, um, I think that like uh, discrimination and prejudices and stuff, um, they filter down mm-hmm. generation to generation. So we are a much more accepting community in 2019 than we were mm-hmm. in the eighties. Um, but those prejudices and those, and those beliefs and things still hang in and, and hang on and they, and they trickle down through generations. Um, and so even though, you know, we aren't in an AIDS crisis at the moment, we are still in a world where, um, you know, there's a scene where um, John's father finds out about his relationship with him and um, that uh, gets quite, there's quite an aggressive reaction to that. And that is still many people's reality mm. in 2019 because they've, you know, those behaviours and, and those expectations, those beliefs trickle down. Mm. Um, so even though, you know, the medicine has come quite far in terms of HIV and stuff like that. Um, the the actual core, the actual very core story about discrimination and about um, the dangers that impact on the lives of people who identify in this way are still really relevant. Because, mm. yeah. I mean, it's while we aren't currently going through anything, I'd say that kind of could compare to the AIDS crisis, we're still trying to get by in a world that was built by the people that did. Mm. So it's like, yeah, like Brad said, so much of that carries over to, um, um, in terms of like the more like day to day, less, uh, medical stuff. Mm. Um, a lot of that still, I think rings quite true for a lot of people. Um, and I think it's also important that we sort of know our roots in a way, I guess, like know what, has come before us. I think that's, it's really important to reflect on those kinds of things in order to make sure that we know where we're going. And I think as well, just by today's sort of today's climate and today's, the issues of plague us now is the play really challenges the idea of traditional forms of hegemonic masculinity and Mm. stuff like that. And I think in, in our culture now, that's like such a important thing that Mm. we do acknowledge like what kinds of masculinity exist yeah. um, in, in holding the man, John uh, is the captain of the football team in school when Tim meets him. Mm. Um, and so it's, you know, the, this idea that this person in this such a traditional heterosexual masculine position um, then goes on this journey or has this story. Mm. And I think those, you know, exploring a, a blend of really sort of traditional hegemonic ideals and then, um, subversive masculinities, um, you know, that's, that will always be quite relevant. Um, and it's particularly relevant now. And it's, I'd say more relevant now than it was, you know, in the eighties in yeah. that regard and in that aspect of the story. Yeah. That's so, yeah. Um, I think like, I just want to jump in here because theater is also like a passion of mine. Um, I think, um, especially in terms of queer theater, when you get a story that not necessarily you can directly relate to, but if you, again yeah it's it's your history like if you are in a room with other people where you know you share the same history it's it's you have a sense of 
um, like a found community, like yeah. for just half a moment, like for however long the show goes for, you're in a room full of people who understand what you're going through outside of um, outside of the theater. Mm. And I think um, for me, that's why stories like this are so important mm-hmm. um, to constantly um, keep bringing back. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think that was one of my main goals with this play. And I think where I think we're definitely getting there with it is I wanted. More than anything, I wanted um, young queer people that came into that theatre mm-hmm. to be able to see themselves represented up on that stage mm-hmm. um, and to be able to feel that sense of community, even if it was just for the hour and a half that they're at the Chanel. Yeah. Um, I just thought that, that was that was important. Yeah. And I really wanted to, to take the opportunity to try and deliver that, I guess. Yeah. And I look forward to seeing it. Yeah, thank you so much for coming into the studio. Um, Holding the Man is giving those dates again, fellas. Uh, we open on the 27th of February. And we go through to March 2nd. At the Chanel Theatre. We will have links um, in the bio and there'll be a couple on the Facebook page as well. Um, Thank you so much for coming in and talking to me today. Um, It's been wonderful to have you. Thank you for Um, having us. Yeah, thank you. You're both wonderful people to talk to and you've both got incredibly good ideas about (laughs) this show. It's like I'm so looking forward to it. (laughs) Um, For everyone out there in podcast listening land, I hope you've had a wonderful half hour with us. Remember to drink water, eat food, you are valid, and we love you. We'll see you next week. Bye. Hello. Bork, bork, hi. You know what you need to be doing? You need to be listening to the Floof and Popper podcast. I'm Mel. I'm Taylor. And we're going to talk about all things dogs. Dog stories. Dog breeds. Dog tips and tricks. Dog puns. Dog jokes. Dog everything. Out if you're not listening. Uh, hit us up at the Floof and Popper podcast wherever you get your podcast. Tune in. Uh, that's not kind of productions podcast. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.